Welcome to the Da Vinci Hour, a podcast series that interviews individuals across the field of medicine to help provide an inside look into their experiences and provide insight on how to navigate the journey of becoming a physician. My name is Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and I will be your host. This podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, a medical education company that provides online video courses, outline format books, and clinical case videos for students studying the medical basic sciences. You can check out all that DaVinci Academy has to offer at www.dbiacademy.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I am joined this week by one of the attendings in my department here at Emory, uh, Dr. Hari Trivedi. Uh, Dr. Trivedi, thanks for joining us. I uh, appreciate you coming on. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Well, we will get into your, uh, your research in AI and in radiology uh, for sure, but definitely want to give the listeners a little bit of background on your your education, your training, and kind of what your current practice looks like right now. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I studied uh, undergraduate at Georgia Tech, uh, bachelor's in biomedical engineering, um, got kind of a real itch for for tinkering and tooling with things during college, and that, that carried on um, into my medical career. So I went to medical school at the Medical College of Georgia, which is in Augusta, Georgia, and then did my uh, radiology residency and musculoskeletal fellowship, um, both at UCSF out in San Francisco. Um, From there, I joined Emory faculty in 2018. So I've been at Emory for close to four years now. Um, I trained, as I mentioned, in musculoskeletal, but I actually practice in emergency radiology predominantly. And then I split my time about 50-50 between uh, research and uh, clinical. Interesting. Yeah. Thanks for giving us that overview. Yeah. And I think we, we met actually went on one of those uh, ER imaging uh, ships, which is uh, pretty cool. And uh, from what I understand, you, you know, you cover both Grady and Emory and uh, kind of the full gamut of, the, of uh, our ERs here at, at the Emory health system. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Emory's got four, uh, community hospitals, um, at, well, the main academic hospital, and then a couple community hospitals. Um, so we cover all of those remotely. And then Grady's so busy. Grady's our county hospital uh, for trauma. Um, and uh, that's pretty busy. So all our whole division kind of covers um, half the time you're covering Grady, and then half the time you're covering the other four hospitals. So it's kind of interesting that Great Grady just stays so busy that um, you really have to have dedicated time to, to cover that. We generally, our, our shifts are double covered as well. So you have uh, overlap between radiologists because certain times of the day will get busier and slower. Um, so it allows us to kind of stay on top of the list and get studies dictated, you know, definitely under an hour, usually under 10 or 15 minutes in most cases. Awesome. Awesome. And, and just quickly, uh, you know, I think just so the listeners realize uh, as an emergency radiologist, you cover kind of head to toe imaging. I mean, you'll do some neuro, obviously your background MSK, you know, a lot of fractures and acute MSK injuries, but kind of the full gamut of, and then obviously chest to and pelvis imaging as well. Yeah. So emergency radiology is different depending on uh, different, different institutions. Um, for example, some, some institutions and even private groups will cover the emergency room with 24 seven radiologists, or even just sometimes overnight radiologists, nocturnists covering the ER at night, and then the ER studies during the day go to their respective divisions. So if there's a CT head during the daytime, they'll go to the neuro division, abdomen, pelvis, go to the body division. And then overnight, it'll either be covered by residents in an academic center or dedicated nocturnists or teleradiology. So every situation is a little bit different. Here at Emory, we have 24-7 coverage of the ER, specifically by um, 
an emergency division. We call it ETI, emergency and trauma imaging. And um, we read everything head to toe with the exception of uh, MRI. Those typically get subspecialty reads. Although in our division, we have people that are neuro trained or body trained or MSK trained. If one of those exams comes through on the list, um, you're welcome to read it and put in a final read. Uh, otherwise, typically there are faculty from the other sections and neuro for, uh, uh, faculty and fellows from the other sections that will cover those exams. Um, most of that is actually a timing issue because you know those like a, a complicated neuro MR could take 30, 40 minutes to interpret or CT perfusion, something like that. And because we just have so much volume, um, we may not be able to turn around those complex studies in the time needed. So those get shunted to people that are dedicated and they're experts and obviously get, you know, slightly higher quality of care. Gotcha. Awesome. Thanks for that, that overview of uh, emergency radiology. And then, like you said, you split your time half between that and then uh, between research and uh, investigating AI. So maybe tell us a little bit about your, the main focus of your research efforts. Yeah. So in 2018, when I joined, uh, we started the Healthcare Innovation and Translational Informatics or the HIDI lab at Emory uh, between myself and Judy Gachoya, who's one of my um, friends and colleagues. She's an interventional radiologist here at Emory. And um, I actually started the lab out of my living room. I bought a server, put a GPU in it, and uh, had one of the residents, Will Wagstaff, help me configure the router to open up the ports so that students could SSH in and started a lab in my house. Um, that went on for about six months. And then, you know, we got the infrastructure and approval to um, have, you know, got some funding to buy servers and then place to put those servers and, and you know, kind of get everything up and running. So, um, you know, we are at any given moment uh, between 12 and 15 students, between undergraduates, grads, med students, PhDs, postdocs. We have um, several faculty members, both inside and outside of Emory that we collaborate with. Um, and we do, you know, we focus on uh, machine learning applications to healthcare overall. Most, most of it has some kind of radiology focus, but sometimes it's not really even in the radiology realm. Um, and that covers things like that are obvious when people think about AI, like diagnosing cancer on a mammogram or finding a nodule on a chest CT, but also, you know, you have to realize that there's a lot of other stuff that machine learning can benefit uh, healthcare in, in that's things like natural language processing. For example, we're trying to start this project where we can automatically get clinical information from the EHR and populate it into a, into a template for the radiologist so they don't have to keep going back to the EHR. So that, and that has nothing to do with diagnosis or imaging or the, well, it has nothing to do with the images per se, um, but all the things around that or follow-up of incidental findings, contacting providers. Um, and so what we focus on in the lab is uh, creating data sets. You need lots of data to build AI models. Uh, we focus on validating existing research and commercial algorithms. And then uh, we focus a lot on um, bias and disparities work, which is um, Judy's, Judy's main focus. So understanding how and when models fail for different patient populations and how to de-bias those models. Um, so those are kind of our core, uh, core competencies in the lab. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and so it sounds like it's, it's a mixture of both, you know, like you said, imaging applications, but then also utilizing AI to help with the like healthcare workflow with the, um, kind of making things more efficient and essentially aiding our, you know, processor, our workflow as, as healthcare providers. 
I guess for those who are a little bit more naive to AI and, and its role, I guess, how would you say, you know, I think people think of AI and they have this kind of dream of, of this computer doing our job for us in a sense, which I, is, I'm sure you can attest is far off from reality. Maybe kind of say where we're at with AI and kind of what the hope is for AI and radiology and in healthcare uh, in general over the next you know few years or so in the near future. Yeah, so there's this quote that's, uh, you know, people uh, repeat ad nauseum, and I'll, I'll do the same here as Jeff Hinton in 2016 said uh, that AI would replace radiologists and we basically should stop training radiology residents. Um, and obviously, you know, seven, six, seven years later now that that hasn't come to, to happen. Uh, and I think part of it is I've realized that um, medical imaging is a lot more complicated uh, than a lot of other things that AI has been applied to. So when you think about AI, people think about self-driving cars. There's also things like suggestion algorithms for Netflix and Amazon Prime. There's your Google suggestions and Google hits and return results based on what you're pre. So, you know, AI is everywhere. In, in healthcare and particularly in radiology, I think the challenge with AI applications is that medicine has a very, 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 very long tail of possible abnormalities and things to detect, right? So I could sit here and rattle off in a chest x-ray. These are the top 10 things that you look for and they occur, you know, aside from normal, um, you could list 10 things that probably cover 95% of chest radiographs, but that tail 5% is a very, very long tail. And so if you wanted to automate an AI system reading any kind of medical imaging study, you'd have to, you know, automate you'd have to be able to detect that extremely long tail in all cases, which is very, very difficult. Um, I also really believe that in a lot of cases, patients are an N of one. Uh, and the more complex the exam, the more unique each patient becomes, um, especially let's say if they're post-operative or you know, have some rare disease. And so training models right now requires tons of examples of a certain pathology to train that model of you know, what, you know, what to look for. And that data is not available at scale for every pathology you may want to detect. And you complicate that by the fact that every pathology, even the same pathology can look very, very different in different patients. I mean, even something as simple as appendicitis, right? I would say 80% of the time we can come down strongly on appendicitis, 20% of the time, you kind of have to hedge a little bit because it's equivocal. And so if you extrapolate that out to all of the possibilities for every patient and what their anatomy looks like and their imaging looks like and their what scanner and you know their age and their gender and all these things, turns out every patient's body is like slight, slightly unique. And the way AI models learn right now is by looking for variants, like common patterns and variances outside of those common patterns. And that can be really, really complicated. So you know, to go back to answer your original question, I think that, you know, AI applications in radiology are targeted towards specific tasks. You can have an AI that helps you detect lung nodules, an AI that helps you detect brain bleeds or pulmonary emboli or pneumonias or pneumothoraces. And you could, you could uh, you know, stick together 20 of those things and get a software suite that can maybe increase the efficiency of a radiologist and help them read cases a little bit better, a little bit more accurate, or a little bit faster, but still very far from the point of doing the entire job of the radiologist interpreting you know, beginning to end. And so I think the common um, sentiment now is that 
you know, AI is a tool that will aid radiologists and, you know, uh, the common, the common quote people, people use and that I like is, you know, a radiologists who use AI will replace radiologists who did not use AI. And I do believe that. Um, but it's a tool. Radiologists who use digital packs replace radiologists who used film libraries, right? Um, hospitals that use EHR replace hospitals that don't use EHR, right? So this is a technology and eventually the technology will become good enough where, you know, if you're not using it, you may get left behind or you may not be able to you know, meet standard of care in terms of efficiency or quality. But um, I don't think that in our career span, I see a full replacement of, of radiology by AI. And I think generally now that the people, people are understanding that the fear has somewhat subsided into more of an understanding, okay, well, how can we use this to benefit us? We're going to take a quick break to let you know the DaVinci Hour podcast is brought to you by DaVinci Academy which provides online video courses for the medical basic sciences. These courses are taught using a variety of teaching methods, including bullet point outlines, diagrams, radiology images, and chalk talks to explain the fundamental concepts. We then teach the application of those concepts to numerous clinical pearls that are frequently tested on medical school exams and the USMLE. Our video courses are available on our website, dviacademy.com, as monthly subscriptions starting at $9.99 per month. Each video course has a corresponding outline format textbook as well. You can find the link to our website in the description below. Also, be sure to use the discount code TDH20 to receive 20% off any of our video courses. All right, now back to the podcast. One thing I want to ask you about, because I, I remember we we kind of briefly talked about this when we were on service that one time uh, is kind of the hurdles you're facing with AI, like getting FDA approval for these certain applications. And then I think you, I remember you talking about getting reimbursed for those and maybe how like, you know, academic institutions bringing these forward versus like using like a startup company, for example, like how that kind of all plays in as well. Yeah. So I will put the caveat that I'm by no means an expert on commercialization and FDA approval. Um, I do work with companies. So we have, you know, commercial, uh, we have industry partners at Emory that we work with um, to validate models and work on research projects and training models together. And then also personally, I consult for, for some companies. So I'm in this space, um, but by far, you know, far, far from an expert in understanding like the FDA approval process. Um, but with that being said, I think there are some challenges towards, I, I, I like to think about it as barriers to adoption of AI models because FDA approval is something that requires due diligence, but there are now hundreds of FDA approved radiology specific AI models. The ACR maintains a list. If you Google you know, ACR AI approved models, you'll, you'll find it. Um, I'm sorry, ACR FDA approved AI models, you'll find it. Um, so there, there, it's not that there's a shortage of available FDA-approved AI models. It's this gap between what does this model do, what is it going to cost us to implement, both hard cost in terms of okay, what is the company charging for this, um, but also other kind of hidden costs of what is the IS overhead of implementing this, going through security review, connecting it into our packs. Uh, going through legal, you know, there's a substantial cost and time commitments. It takes, let's say, six months to get something like this in. 
So what are all these costs against what are the potential benefits? And so in the early days, um, you know, people talked about, okay, well, this is going to improve accuracy and improve patient care and patient safety. And that's true in a lot of cases, but it turns out, you know, when push comes to shove, improving accuracy doesn't really necessarily turn into a return on investment in terms of revenue. And all hospital systems, academic and non-academic, can be very cash-strapped in certain situations. So if you want to pay 50 to 100,000 for a piece of software that finds, you know, 5% or 10% additional pulmonary nodules, that's fantastic from a patient standpoint. And it's needed and it's good for patient care. But we have to go that extra step and understand, okay, well, if I catch five to 10% extra nodules, am I actually reducing cancer rates for these patients? Am I somehow you know, improving the lives of these patients? And also somehow am I driving additional revenue into my practice or into my hospital system? And that's a unique aspect of what we have in the United States in a fee-for-service system where the incentives for adopting technology and software may not always be aligned with what's best for the patient. I don't advocate that this is the right way to do this, but the reality is in a fee-for-service system, if you have a piece of software that improves quality, but somehow decreases your revenue, you know, you're going to scan less or do fewer procedures, you're going to have an uphill battle getting hospitals or groups to adopt that and say, okay, well, I'm going to pay a hundred thousand for this piece of software and I'm going to do 10% fewer biopsies. Why would I pay for something that's going to bring me less revenue? Um, in national healthcare systems in, the Euro in Europe or the UK, for example, you kind of have this triple win situation where, for example, if you had a, a model for breast cancer that uh, reduced false positive biopsies, you know, fewer biopsies save the healthcare system money, um, save doctors time, and you save patients biopsies. This is triple win. But the same piece of software in the US, great for patients, great for payers, uh, not necessarily great financially for a practice, right? And so here in the United States, I think a lot of uh, what has been adopted and gained traction is things that improve efficiency, that if you use the software, you can interpret 10% more exams in the same period of time. So you can you interpret more studies, drive more revenue, or this patient will capture incidental findings and make sure patients get plugged into care and get stay in the hospital system as a means to drive revenue in. Um, and, you know, I don't love that that's the way our healthcare system incentives are aligned, but if you really look at the reality of what gets purchased and how people justify paying for something. The minority is things that strictly improve quality. The ideal situation in the United States is something that improves quality, efficiency, and somehow drives additional revenue. And there are some software, there are some models and software and companies that realize this and, and that are doing that. So, so we'll get there, but we have, we have some, uh, un, I would say not ideal market pressures that kind of uh, serve as a barrier to doing this. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's interesting how it fits in both to the Europe, like the European socialized medicine model. And then, like you said, the fee for service uh, model here in the U S um, and kind of those different challenges you have to consider. I guess I'm curious as we wrap up here, uh, in, as far as your lab goes, the Hitty lab, what, what kind of new, uh, just developments or projects are you most excited about and that you see kind of driving like a, a large impact in the years to come? So um, for me, I, I, I'll, I'll kind of split into two categories. So for me personally, I've been focused a lot on a data set development. We have this, this 
gift at Emory where our patient population is very unique. Uh, we, have, we serve about 50% African-American patients. Um, to my knowledge, there's no other academic center in the country or maybe even the world that has our patient distribution. And these patients are not represented in any medical imaging data set or medical non-imaging data set, any kind of medical data set, these patients are not represented, right? And so, you know, there's papers published out there, you hear stats like 97% of medical data sets are, uh, you know, predominantly white patients of European descent, right? And so there's this huge group of patients that have no representation and in clinical research and in AI model development. And so if you don't make that data available to train models, then you have models that end up inevitably failing on that patient population. So data set development is a huge thing for us, right? Because we are positioned to be able to create these data sets, which then can be used to train and validate models and ensure that they will serve our patients uh, equitably, you know, as the same as a patient population from Boston, for example. Um, I also focus a lot, I think for me personally, my interest is in uh, this last mile of AI. You know, five years ago, the, the hype was about, um, well, what can AI do? Wow, look at this, this AI can automatically detect a fracture. That's amazing. And I, I still remember uh, Dave Averin, he was on rotation with him. Um, he's uh, the editor for uh, JDI, uh, body radiologist at UCSF, great guy. And I was talking to him on a body rotation and he said, you know, he said, uh, I just saw this piece of software and someone showed me and this, this, this was like 2016 or 17, so AI was just becoming popular for radiology. And it, he said it can detect wrist fractures automatically. And I looked at it and it's like 97% accurate. And my mind was blown. I mean, at that time, like you almost take it for granted now, five, six years later, but I didn't believe it. I mean, I was like, how can... I mean, a wrist fracture can look so many different ways. And, you know, what if they have osteopenia and what if they have post-traumatic deformity and, you know, like, you know, just all of these edge cases, how could, how could this AI model detect something as complicated as wrist fractures? And then here we are five years later and you take it for granted. Yeah, I can detect wrist fractures. I can detect PEs. I can detect brain bleeds. I can detect, you know, pneumothoraces. I mean, you, you can basically come up with any clinical use case and given enough training data, I feel very confident that an AI model can detect that abnormality, right? So we understand that the technology is good, right? But now it's like this last mile. So implementation science, I think is really important. And what I wanna focus a lot of our time on is, okay, what do these models look like when we actually implement them? How do we monitor them long-term? How do we account for data drift and population drift? Um, and you know, how do we provide the AI model results to a radiologist or a cl any clinician in a way that they can understand, interpret, and use to care for patients rather than just some additional arbitrary data element that they don't know what to do with, right? I mean, it's, it's throwing additional data at somebody. Like, for example, if you gave me a lab value for a lab I'd never heard of before, and you say, you know, the patient's... Uh, aluminum level is 3.6. Great. What, what do I do with that? Right. And so like some of these AI models, the output is not provided in a way, potentially as quantitative models not provide, or like a probabilistic model, not provided in a way that a radiologist can make use of that information. So application science is really, really important. So you know, data set development, model validation, application science. And I think the other side of the coin, which is what Judy Kachoya is really focused on, is fairness and equity. 
Um, and that kind of goes back to my point about data sets is how do we make models that reduce bias? How do we uh, prevent models from learning protected features like race or demographics or things and not relying on those features to make predictions about patients erroneously, but rather actually learn the pathology than learn you know, that this is a black 70 year old patient that has this percentage risk of uh, pneumonia, right? So how do, we, how do we remove those crutches and then ensure that the AI models perform well across all subgroups? Um, so the, I think those are, those are kind of the main things that we, we hope to work on. We're, we're hugely collaborative. We believe in open science. Almost everything we do is released freely to the public uh, on GitHub, our lab, our codes, our models. Um, even this large data set I developed, we're going to release about 20% of it public, publicly so people can use it to uh, validate their models. And, and so I think like this integrative approach, multi-institutional, multinational is, is uh, a lot of what we're going to be focused on as well. That's all really exciting. I mean, I think it, one, you kind of hit on that, you know, no two patients are the same and you got to take into consideration, you know, their race, their gender, all those types of things, especially if you're trying to build a model that can be applied to, you know, not, not just one particular type of patient, but everybody. So I think that I can definitely see, you know, how impactful that could be for sure. And then obviously, like you said, uh, improving systems. Uh, so I congratulate you and, and Dr. Gachoy on your, on your guys' great work. And uh, if I'm just curious if any of the listeners want to get involved with you guys, what's, uh, what's the best way for them to reach out, uh, and, you know, either collaborate or if it's like a student or a resident that would want to work with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but just, you know, post my email in the podcast, you've got it. Um, people are welcome to look out, uh, you know, reach out to us and, uh, they're also welcome to visit our website, which is hittylab.org. Uh, there's a hyphen in there. So it's hitty-lab.org. Um, and you know, we, we, we love new, interesting, interested, I should say, um, folks that are, you know, you don't have to have programming experience necessarily. You just got to have, you know, uh, an interesting project in mind and, and, you know, the, the, the desire to work on these kind of things and we can get you set up. Awesome. We'll definitely put that in the show notes. And our last question every, we ask everybody is when you're not doing AI research or radiology, what do you do with your, your time outside the hospital? How do you uh, unwind? <laughs> Well, given that we have two young children, uh, sleep is huge. Um, but besides for that, I'm a big car nut. So car shows, washing my car, perseverating about my car, cleaning my car, inspecting my car, um, and, and, and vacuuming my wife's car because she'll get mad if I only clean my car. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. What, what's your, what's your dream car? If you, if you could pick one. Oh gosh. Um, I, I mean, when I was young, I always wanted a Lamborghini. I think I'm at the age now where I think I probably couldn't get away with like riding around in something flashy like that, but I would <laughs> like a nice, I would like a nice, you know, two seater fast sports car one day, you know, I've always wanted to track actually. So, you know, getting a car and getting some track wheels and tires for it and actually like racing would be a lot. I've done that a couple of times and got the bug. So yeah, that would be ideal. That's awesome. No, that, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, well, Dr. Trevetti, thank you again for, for joining us and, and uh, telling us about it, your research and AI and kind of the, where AI is going and that evolving role in both radiology and medicine. Uh, and thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. More episodes are available on our website at dviacademy.com, our YouTube channel. They're also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also on our website, 
you can find our video courses for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology, and they're available as month-to-month -month packages. They're also available as a combo package where you can get all three courses in one. Our website also has a store where you can find our outline format textbooks for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology. All textbooks are available in paperback version and as ebooks as well. These textbooks complement our video courses and provide a nice addition to the learning experience of allowing you to focus on the learning and not having to write anything down. On our website, we also provide a free clinical cases video series called Da Vinci Cases. Da Vinci Cases aims to help you learn how to answer USMLE questions and apply concepts that you learn in our courses to answering those questions. Our cases cover a variety of topics and organ systems, and they're updated frequently with new cases. And then lastly on our website, you can find our blog, which has interesting articles that cover medical history, important figures in medicine, and innovations in medicine. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to tune in for our next episode.